Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm so excited uh, that you are joining us for this uh, particular installment in this series that we're engaged with. Let me begin by giving a shout out to those of you who are in San Jose and especially to those who are our guests uh, kind of traveling along with us in regards to this series. And a shout out to those of you who are watching us online from across the country and across the world. I am so delighted, so delighted you're joining us, especially for today's message. Now, we're looking at life's big questions. Today we're going to ask the question, why does God allow pain and suffering? Next week we're going to ask the question, is Jesus really God? And the week after that we're going to ask the question, is Christianity too narrow? If you missed the first two weeks of teaching because each week builds on the other, we dealt with purpose, we dealt with the question, is, uh, is there a God? Uh, simply go to our website. I want to make sure you engage and share these messages, if you will, with your family and friends who you think will be helpful, uh, to whom you think it will be helpful. Now, I'm super excited. There's 175 churches doing this work together across the bay. A lot of us pastors, a number of us are good friends, and so we're sharing notes. We're doing the best we can to learn from each other as we engage in these tough questions. And I'm excited that there's 176 small discussion groups connected with NBCC, both virtually and in person, that's operating across the bay and beyond. So my challenge to you is this. Join the discussion. Don't just watch online. Don't just watch from our seats in San Jose. Come on. Either form a group or join a group. All you got to do is go to our website, and all of the information is there to help you to either form a group or join a group. All right. God bless this teaching today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Here's the question that we're wrestling with today. Why does God allow pain and suffering? Let's look at one of my favorite passages. I quote it often uh, and have used it uh, so much through my 30 plus years of ministry. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2 and 3. Here's what Habakkuk says. How long, Lord? How long must I call for help, but you do not listen? I'll cry out to you, violence, but you do not say. Why? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence, Lord, they are before me. Their strife and conflict abounds. Our brother Habakkuk is asking the same questions that we find ourselves asking. God, why do you allow such pain and suffering? Or why won't you do something? Or sometimes we say it this way, why didn't you intervene, God? Listen, guys, these are biblical questions. Throughout the biblical text from the beginning of the Bible all the way to Job, all the way through to the New Testament, we hear believing people, heroes and heroines, asking this question. For example, Psalms 10.1, we hear the writer say, Oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? And we heard Jesus himself when he quoted Psalms 22.1, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me as he died from a Roman cross? Can you say why? Now, here's something that, uh, two things that may be uh, interesting for you to know. The first thing that may be interesting for you to know is this, that most of the times when this question is asked throughout Scripture, it is rarely answered. And when it is, never completely so. And the second thing that you'll be interested in knowing is that God wants you and me to ask the question. It's tied critically to how you and I will make our choices and interpret what's going on around us. 
Now listen, as a Presbyterian pastor, I learned that if the Bible doesn't have an answer for a question, we don't have to have an answer either. But it is our responsibility, and I'm talking to all of you who are Jesus followers now. I think this is, I share this responsibility with you. It is our responsibility to, to provide comfort and to facilitate dialogue. So here's how I often respond when I get questions like, why is God allowing pain and suffering? Uh, number one, I don't know, but. Can you say it with me? I don't know, but. I, I don't know, but. You know what? You're not alone in asking this question. I don't know, but you are not wrong for asking this question. I don't know, but let's reflect together and see what we can learn together as we engage this question. For Habakkuk, the question why was not asked in a classroom. You want to know his context? It was a context that looked very much and felt very much like what's going on in Israel as, as they are responding to the attacks of Hamas and what's now happening uh, in Gaza as well as in Israel. Pain and suffering and violence and injustice. It, it was a context very much like what many of you are living through. You're dealing with your own version of pain and suffering and injustice. For Habakkuk, he was a 7th century uh, prophet, the southern kingdom of Israel, known as Judah, was attacked by the Babylonians, just like Hamas attacked Israel in the last few days. The Babylonian was as brutal as we have seen on TV uh, as it relates to Hamas. Uh, 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 there was, there was uh, torture, there was atrocities. They put in place a puppet government, and check this out. They took hundreds of people from Judah, and they, they chained them, and they took them away hundreds of miles to Babylonia, just like some of the kidnappings that we're engaging with today. These people are part of Habakkuk's friendship circles and family circles. So when he asked the question, why, it was inside of a real-life context. You know, uh, some of you may or may not know that uh, our Redwood City campus is in a Jewish synagogue, uh, Congregation Beth Jacob. And the other day, I called our friend, my friend and good friend and brother, uh, Rabbi Ezra, and I just wanted to know how he was doing. And he shared with me that uh, all across the Jewish community, scattered across uh, his congregation across Palo Alto, that people had direct relationships with people who were being slaughtered, murdered, and kidnapped. And in between stories, he would pause with such grief. He said to me, this is, this is our, meaning Israel's, 9-11 moment. I offered him prayers in support of our, support of our congregation. And then I called my friend uh, Yusuf Avali. He's Muslim. He's a dear brother of mine, a friend of mine. We worked together many years ago in Boston. He now serves the mayor, in serves with the mayor of Boston. And I wanted to know from his side, how are the people in, in Gaza that he's connected to, how are they doing? And he said that when the attacks took place, that the people in Gaza, oh my gosh, they, they, were, they were just horrified. Not only because of the horrible attacks done, quote-unquote, in their name, but they knew that the situation for them, which they already felt victimized in, 
would be multiplied a hundred times worse. And we're watching it on our TVs as, 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 as homes and houses are levied in Gaza, just like to such great pain in Israel. And from the rubbish comes the question, why? And I just want to submit to you, that is a relevant, important question. And yet, I'm mindful of, of one uh, news uh, story I saw was a guy from Gaza had his daughter running out of debris. He was covered with debris and blood, and he was trying to get his daughter to an ambulance, and he was saying, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And that same scene is replicated in Israel a thousand times over. And, 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 and here's what I know. Even when we somehow grasp at the answer to the multi-layered question, why, in that situation, it seldom brings comfort to the grieving and to the suffering. And yet, there's something in us that says we need to wrestle with the question. And God says, I want you to. And so we hear Becca say again, how long, Lord, how long must I call for help and you do not listen? We resonate with that or cry out to you, violence, but you do not say we feel that deep within our bones. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Why, why, why? Good questions. But today we're not just going to ask the question why. Because if we're suffering, we need some comfort. And we need some hope. So we're going to ask three questions. Why? Where? And how? Can you say those with me? Why? Where? And how? Why does God allow such pain and suffering? Where is God in the midst of suffering? And how do I respond to the pain and suffering in my lives and to the pain and suffering in the world? Let's begin with the question, why does God allow such pain and suffering? Last week, I dealt the question, does God exist? And for many people, when they come to this whole issue of pain and suffering God, they just conclude God does not exist. So I, I direct you to last week's message, if that's the category you're in. Otherwise, uh, just, just engage and watch those of us in, the, in what I call the witnessing community, all right? The faithful community, those of us who do believe. And here's the insight. Here's the insight. Here's the insight. Listen, all of the people in the scriptures who asked the question why, you know what? They were believers. All of the people who I've pastored over the years who've gone through all kinds of crises, like, like the woman who I had to sit at her bedside uh, and, and try to bring comfort to her, uh, whose who daughter was murdered and body was set ablaze, or the father who sobbed in my arms because just a few hours earlier, uh, uh, he, he and his wife and daughter was hiking and his daughter's foot slipped and, and his wife reached for her and both of them fell into a, a fast moving river. And he had to make a decision in a split second. Do I save my daughter or do I save my wife? And he went for his daughter and he lost his wife. These are people who believe. And in these circumstances, we're not really asking questions about, does God exist? In these circumstances, when you hear why come out of those circumstances, we're really asking questions about God's character. We're asking, God, 
Can we trust you? God, are you faithful? And God is loving enough and relational enough to welcome those questions. And, and today he says, I will set for an examination. I want you to examine my character. Are you faithful? Can I trust you? Oh, I know that story very well. You see, I was a young pastor, just traveled and arrived in Pine Bluff, Arkansas with my amazing wife, Rhonda. She was nine months pregnant. We had celebrated the pregnancy for nine months. When we got to the town, we realized that we hadn't felt the baby kicking a while. One thing led to another. Before we knew it, we found ourselves in the hospital to hear the horrendous words. The baby had died, wrapped up in the umbilical cord, and died. I can't tell you how shattering that was for me and Rhonda. And I can't tell you how angry I was with God for an entire year. But I can tell you this. On repeated occasions, I said to God, God, I feel like you made a fool out of me. I was praying over this child and everything. And I'm telling you, God, I don't feel like I can trust you. And some of you listen to me, you can relate to this. And oftentimes when we find ourselves grappling with the character of God or, or the faithfulness of God, and we think about God and the, and the issue of pain and suffering, we kind of talk about it like this. Some people talk about it like this. They say, well, listen, if God is all-powerful, it must mean that he's not good. Because if he's powerful and good, how can he sit by and not intervene in suffering and pain? There are others who will say this. If God is good, meaning his character is intact, it must mean he just can't do anything. He's not all-powerful. They say, which is it? Well, God sets for the examination of his character today, and he, he, says, he says, here's the first thing that he wants us to learn. The question has been framed wrong. Here's the actual insight, number one. Our loving God, and yes, he is loving. This is the God who says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Yes, he is loving. Our loving God is all-powerful, but he's not all-controlling. We have to examine our somewhat simplistic images of God. We see God as a puppeteer uh, uh, controlling all of the strings of every detail of life. That is not how God is. God engages with us and his creation vis-a-vis -vis relationship that is shaped by love. Watch this, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Adam has been made. It's a remarkable story to teach us about the unfolding journey of humanity. It's at the heart of what we're seeing on TV. Watch this. It says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free, shout free, free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Let me just say, first of all, about the tree, there was nothing special about the tree. It, it, it's the act towards the tree that would reveal, come on now, whether the perpetrators of the act, Adam and Eve, were good or moving towards evil. Now, here's the insight. The text says God commanded, but it does not say he controlled. 
He didn't put a wall around the tree. He didn't put a fence around the tree. As a matter of fact, it suggests something marvelous about God. That God, who is all-powerful, imposes limits on himself because as a loving God, he wants to set us free to choose to love him or not. He knows you can't control love into somebody's heart. He knows that, that, uh, that uh, how you say, uh, uh, forcing obedience only goes just so far. So he does the first act. He imposes limits on himself so that you and I, along with Adam and Eve, can have the gift of being able to choose. And when we choose in alignment with God's word, we move towards love and goodness. And when we choose in opposition to God's word, we open up space for evil and death. And so we're in war and rumors of war often because we just keep choosing wrong. And I said, God wants us to examine this question because he wants us to wrestle with what are some of the choices we're making? Is it moving towards God's word and God's purpose and God's love or is it moving away? Our loving God is all powerful, but he's not all controlling. Secondly, as we think about this question of God and pain and suffering, our beautiful world is a broken world that is bound by death and decay. Scripture says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life. We live in a beautiful world, but a broken world. Here's what Romans 8.21 says. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in a glorious freedom, glorious liberation from what? death and decay, which means that right now the creation is locked and bound by death and decay. Death and decay, that's the answer for hurricanes and earthquakes showing up in places that, that, that defines creation, death and decay. I had a good friend by the name of Tom Flatley. He's a multi-billionaire, but was a dear friend of mine in Massachusetts. He spent millions of dollars, I can't tell you, doing incredible good across the world. And yet he died of one of the worst diseases anyone could die of, Lou Garrison disease. Why did this good man die like that? Because he was a good man living in a body bound by death and decay. And sometimes that shows up as Lou Garrison disease. I know another young woman who's an amazing young woman uh, on the other side of the country. She's struggling with clinical depression, and sometimes she wakes up asking the question, what have I done? Why has God afflicted me this way? And she has done nothing, and God has not afflicted her in any kind of way. This is not punishment from God. It's just that she's a wonderful, brilliant young woman living in a body bound by death and decay, and it shows up in this way, clinical depression. And when you live, and when I live in a broken world, bound by death and decay, the world is turned upside down, guys. Bad things happen to good people in a broken world, bound by death and decay. Good things happen to bad people in a broken world, bound by death and decay. Things don't always work out the way we pray that they would work out on this side of eternity because we all have to end up at the doorstep of death itself. 
Somebody said, we all want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> Amen. Oh, we can't escape it. So, God is all-powerful, but he's not all-controlling. We live in a beautiful but a broken world, bound by death and decay. And number three, in response to the question, why won't God do something? Here is the answer. God is doing something. If somebody's sitting next to you, just turn to him and tell him, God is doing something. Look at what 1 John 4, 16 says. God is love. And all who live, watch this, in love. This really talks about this kind of redemptive love. Come on now. Live in God. And God lives in them. Whether they know it or not. Oh, my gosh. The other day I saw a new story. There's a group of young people. They're Arabs, Muslims, and Christians. They are working together, and they're running towards harm to help rescue people in both Gaza and Israel trying to make a difference. Now, for that person who's watching me and says that, you know what, life is an accident, and everything is all about evolution, and, and if that's the case, you know, the principal theory of evolution is that the, 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 only the strong survive, right? The strong destroys the weak. It is defined by violence. Well, how do we account for kindness? How do we account for redemptive love where people will sacrifice themselves to make the world better? Oh, that is the proof that the love of God is at work. Why? Because God is love, and whoever lives in love will discover that God lives in them. So we see God doing things all around us. Come on now. The hospice worker sitting by the bedside of a stranger who's dying, that's God's power at work. The friend going through stages, going through the stages of cancer with, with their good friend. That's the love of God at work in their lives. The loved one who's stepping into trauma every day to care, care for that person who is stricken by Alzheimer's. Uh, that person who would dare stand to march and fight for justice and put their lives at risk. Whether they know God or not, that police officer or soldier, come on now, who will put their lives on the line to protect and to preserve. Come on. That's the love of God at work all around you every single day. That is the love of God. God is doing something. That is why November the 12th, we call it our serve day at, at, uh, here at, uh, at NBCC. And we're going to go out by the hundreds. And we do it every year as part of our Be Rich to Others effort. And we're going to serve in difficult neighborhoods. And we're going to renovate apartments so that women who are trapped in domestic violence can escape the violence and have a place for them and their children to live. We're going we're to help work at schools and, 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 and a range of things so that the, the light of the church, which is the light of Jesus, can shine bright to remind people God is doing something and to train ourselves and remind ourselves that the, every day we do acts of love and kindness, we are the proof that God is at work in the world. Tell somebody God is doing something. You know, one of my favorite passages, God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love God and call according to his purpose. That's Romans 8, 28. It says that all the bad, somehow God is at work and he can, he doesn't make it happen, but he can work through it. I like N.T.'s right translation of that verse, though, straight from the Greek. 
Here's how Wright translates it. God works all things for good with those, with those, with those who love him. Wherever you see sacrificial, redemptive love happening in the world, you are seeing God working all things for good. I hope you're a part of that. Wow. So, in answer to the question, God, why don't you do something? The answer is, God is doing something. And in answer to the question, God, why don't you intervene? The answer is, I did intervene. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his great love. God shows his great heart for us. That by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. I remember as a teenager in my wayward days, I came home and my grand aunt had gotten a report that had done something pretty horrible. Don't ask what it is, not your business. <laughs> when I walked into the room where my grand aunt was and she was a stern woman, and she was so angry. And I knew not to get too close to her because I did. I say she was so angry. <laughs> and then for the first time in my life, I watched her melt in tears. And she says, Herman, I've done everything that I know to do. I've punished you and, and withheld things and disciplined you. And she says, you're getting worse, not better. And she just melted in a puddle of tears. It was in that moment that the transformation began to happen in small bits and pieces in my life. Not because she forced me, not because she threatened me, not because she disciplined me, but when she unveiled her heart, her weeping heart to me, it transformed my heart. Jesus dying on a Roman cross in the place, my goodness, in the place of those who do sin and wrongdoing and evil. That's all of us. He's dying. Come on now. For folk in Israel, he's dying for folk in Gaza. He's even dying for the Hamas because Hamas at one point were babies growing up in a culture that shaped them with hatred. And yet he's dying for all of us. As an antidote to sin, shame, and death. That's the source of death. And then through his resurrection... He takes death itself and he transforms it from a permanent reality into a temporary human experience for those who would dare trust him. And so we ask the question, where is God in the midst of my suffering? Where is he? I told you I was angry with God, didn't I? About six, seven months in, in my quiet time, God spoke to me. I told you that I said that I didn't trust God, didn't I? God, who had allowed me to examine his character, now says, if you want to examine my character, see my son on the Roman cross. If you wanted to examine how faithful I am, see my son. This is what you preach, Herman, every day. Look at my son on Calvary's cross. And he says, you want to examine my character? Ask me this question. You're going to let one no erase all of the yeses that I have poured into your life? That when you were six months old and about to die 
and your grandmother was praying, and I said yes, and you were on the emergency table at San Francisco General, and you lived? When you came out of the hospital, and there was nobody to take you about to go into foster home, but I said yes, and, and, and your grand and uncle opened up their, their home in Louisiana. Come on now, and you lived? Come on. I brought you, boy, from being a student in special education in Cushada, Louisiana, to being a, a teacher and a professor at Harvard Divinity School in Cambridge, and you're going to let all of my yeses come on, be erased because I said, well, no. Did you forget the cross that you preach about? Did you forget the victory secured by my son being raised from the dead? Let me tell you where your boy is. He is where I am. And let me tell you about your situation. Come on now. I'm multidimensional. And therefore, I am right where you are in your suffering, strengthening you to go on. I'm with you. <laughs> I had a friend, Alan Belton. He was a preacher. Literally three weeks before he died, me and a couple of pastors were going to sit by, went to visit him. We sat by his bed. He had already told me he wanted me to speak at his funeral, and, and I think he was kind of giving me the notes, but it was a remarkable thing. He, 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 he stood up in his bed, pushed up like this. You, I wish you could see the twinkle in his eye. He said, he said, Herman, he says, there's something that's been, that's been in my spirit the last few weeks. He said, you know what it is? I said, what? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. You can replace evil with war. You can replace it with Alzheimer's. You can replace it with cancer. You can replace it with death itself. I shall fear no. And then he says, why, why, why? And then he goes on, for thou art with me. It's something remarkable when we recognize that the God of the universe who showed up in Jesus is with us in our suffering. Can I just lean in a little bit on this point? That's a fascinating story in the Gospel of John chapter 11. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are two people that Jesus dearly loved. They lived in Bethany right outside Jerusalem. Lazarus took sick. And his sisters knew that Jesus, who healed the sick, come on now, come on, restored sight to the blind, could help Lazarus. So they sent word. It says, so sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick, really meaning he's dying. But then the next verse says this, that when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Doesn't mean it won't go through death, but it won't end in death. Come on. That's what Alan was saying, that, that, that my story will not end in death. My life will not end in death. Jesus goes on to say, no, it is for God's glory. The word glory means, in, in, in one way, it means to shine the light. For God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified, illuminated once and for all, historically, so that anybody who's facing evil can have assurance that if he's got them and they are in him, they're going to be all right. And so the story goes on that Lazarus dies. Four days later, Jesus shows up. Martha comes to see him, but Mary stays at home. Mary is through with Jesus. She says, you've been unfaithful. She says, you let me down. I don't want to see you. That's our experience. That's my, that was my experience. 
But Jesus is so compassionate because you know why? He understands that we don't understand that even his nose are at work in a bigger way in our lives. And the Martha comes to him and says, even now you can do something about this. Uh, uh, and Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. She says, well, that's at the end of history. No, no, no. Jesus says, come on, I'm the definition of life. Life begins with me. Oh, y'all ain't listening. And I am the source of resurrection. If you got me, you shall never die, is what the text goes on to say. And, 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 and what, 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 what he's saying is something incredibly powerful. What he's saying is that death, come on now, can grab you, but it can't hold you. That's what he's saying. And then the text races forward. At the end of the story, Jesus goes to the grave where Lazarus is. And he demonstrates to us that the one who's not all controlling remains all powerful. And he cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus come forth. And the text says, and the dead man comes back to life. That's what it means when Jesus says, here's an illustration that I am the resurrection and the life. I have power to transform the permanent reality of death into a temporary experience. It, it will not have the last word. I do. Wow. But the interesting thing is, come on now, that was victory. But Mary and Martha had to get from suffering to victory. And the question was, where is God? And the text in verse 33 says that when Jesus saw Mary, who came finally, she came to where Jesus was. She threw herself at his feet, and she's, she's crying and screaming at him. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's your fault. Where were you? Why didn't you come? And then Jesus looks at her weeping, and he looks at the folk around, and loads the word. He says, they're wailing. And the first thing we recognize is that Jesus shares in their anger. He too is angry. This is not supposed to be. Death is the ultimate injustice in the world. And the ultimate expression of evil. And it goes on to say that he was deeply troubled. And then he asked this question. Where have you laid him? And somebody said, Lord, come see and it was at that moment that the text says, Jesus wept. Oh, did you catch the connection? In the journey towards the victory, they needed God to be with them. And in reflection, come on now, on the other side of Jesus' resurrection, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus could look back and they say, when they could know that when they needed God the most, there he was in Jesus, come on now, weeping with them and, and staring in their anger and giving them the strength that they needed, come on now, to make the journey towards victory. You can't make the journey out and through suffering on your own. Mm. You can't. But God shows up in Jesus and says, I'll help you. I'll weep with you. God, ladies and gentlemen, you don't just need an all-powerful God. You need a weepy God who weeps with you and shares in your anger, and yet who has the ultimate power to have the last word over Life and death. I'm finished now. Let me, let me end it here. I'm thinking about my friend Alan. 
he told the story in that moment that we were visiting him. He said, he said, he told a story about when he was a young man, he had a beautiful car, he bought a brand new car, it was a nice car, and it ended up in an accident. And he talked about it. he didn't have insurance, and the police picked up the car. And he never made the connection between the car and the insurance and why he was, how he wanted to connect that to this notion that, that, that thou art with me. But then at his funeral, I made the connection. I said, here's what Alan was trying to say. That he learned in that moment that it is unwise to drive a beautiful car uh, on the unpredictable streets, come on now, of America without insurance. And he extrapolated from that, that it is unwise to live uh, 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 your wonderful life, come on now, on the unpredictable highways of life, come on now, without, not insurance, but without assurance. And he said that when he locked his life into Jesus, he ultimately ends up with assurance. Come on now. That whatever he ended up at, it would not have the last word. Jesus would have the last word. So let me, let me end here. How should I respond? How should you respond? Number one, choose to trust. Trust Jesus. Come on, all the way. Number two, uh, uh, number two, commit to follow. Follow him all the way through death into victory. Whatever it takes because he went through death into victory. Come on. And number three, be assured. Be assured that when it's all said and done, that the loving God who is all powerful will make all things new. Let me read this beautiful text and I'm finished. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city. Watch this, Jerusalem. We're talking about Jerusalem, aren't we? The new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout uh, echoing across eternity from the throne. Look, God's home is now among his people and here comes the assurance. One day, come on now, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Assurance, and there will be no more death and no more sorrow and no more crying and no more pain and all of these things will be gone forever. Assurance, and the one sitting on the throne says, look, I am making everything in that place, I'll see my son again, well kept and well cared for by the Savior. But until then, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I'm an heir of salvation that was purchased by God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, and this is my song. Assurance. Praising my Savior all the day long. Amen and amen.